Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by state historian emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. I have exciting news for our listeners. Connecticut Explored, the nonprofit organization that publishes Connecticut Explored magazine, is pleased to announce that Grading the Nutmeg, our history podcast, produced in partnership with the Connecticut State Historian Emeritus Walt Woodward, has received a 2023 Award of Merit from the Connecticut League of History Organizations. Podcast executive producers are Mary Donahue and Walt Woodward, with guest producer Natalie Belanger from the Connecticut Historical Society and podcast engineer Patrick O'Sullivan of High Wattage Media. The award recognizes the podcast for furthering a more complete understanding of history in Connecticut. In our award letter, the award committee said they were particularly impressed by the range of topics covered in the podcast, the depth of research and the expertise brought to bear on the material, and the multiple formats available that increase the accessibility of the content. With the added digital preservation through the Connecticut Digital Archive, the podcast serves as an excellent example of how to bring our state's history to a wider public while also ensuring its enduring accessibility. I want to thank the Connecticut League of History Organizations for this award, and I want to thank our listeners for your support. What's the most beautiful house in Connecticut? Lifestyle site Thrillist set out to find the most beautiful building in each state, and Philip Johnson's New Canaan Glass House got the nod for Connecticut. Today we'll talk about that glass house and why it's important. My guest for today's episode is Gwen North-Reese. She has conducted many interviews for the Glass House's Oral History Project and worked for several years as an educator conducting tours of the 49-acre National Trust site. Her article for Connecticut Explored, Philip Johnson's 50-Year Experiment in Architecture and Landscape, was published in the winter of 2020. It's available on our Connecticut Explored website. She has written many articles on modern architecture in New Canaan, especially during the early 2000s when New Canaan's experimental modern houses were being demolished. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mary. I'm happy to be here. You know, Philip Johnson's career spanned nearly 75 years and he lived to be 98. But let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about his early life. Well, you're right that his his life really kind of spanned the 20th century. He was born in 1906 and died in 2005. When he he grew up in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and his his father was an attorney who did a lot of work for startup companies, which in the early part of the 20th century usually meant patents and manufacturing processes. Homer Johnson often received stock certificates as payment because you had a a startup company that didn't have its earnings yet. And um, he also decided, he and his wife, to give their three children an inheritance when they were about 18 or so to get them started so they could use it for travel or, or education. Homer and Louise Johnson gave the girls cash and real estate, and they figured Philip could fend for himself, and they handed him some stock certificates. And the company whose stock certificates he held was Alcoa. So it was the, you know, they were hugely valuable. Um, You know, so he went from being, you know, a sort of well-to-do but not wealthy person to, at you know, as an undergraduate, 
in the 20s, he had a million dollars, which was not a, a nice nest egg. It was serious wealth. And that is a fortune that he spent and gave away over his lifetime, um, constantly buying art and donating to MoMA. His He went to Harvard as an undergraduate and studied uh, philosophy and uh, the classics. And then after that, and he, he had many friendships from those days of people who were interested in the arts, some of the early founders of MoMA. He went to um, work for MoMA after that um, and said to them, that there was no department of architecture. It was still kind of a rebel institution. And he said, I will pay my salary and an assistant salary if I can be curator of architecture. He had already traveled in Europe and seen the work of the Bauhaus architects um, and Mies van der Rohe, who he who he admired so much and and really later emulated. And so he was the curator for the 1932 International Style Exhibition at MoMA, which really was a huge landmark show that introduced the Bauhaus architects and other modernists, um, including Frank Lloyd Wright. He didn't need an introduction, but he had to, had to include right. Um, he was really introducing them to the American art scene. And so that was a very influential exhibition that he did with uh, Henry Russell Hitchcock. After that time, he went, he had in the, in his, and let's see, it was in the mid to late 30s. This is where Johnson had his disastrous digression into fascist politics. Um, it was an enormous mistake he realized later in life, but it took him several years to realize it. He was basically writing for Father Coughlin's magazine, Social Justice, and promoting fascist politics in the United States. And he, of course, was back and forth to Germany during all of his trips for architecture. You know, he was a young gay man in Berlin who fell in love with, with Berlin and with Germany and had his blinders on. And, you know, as you find, as you learn more about Philip Johnson's life, it's full of contradictions, so many contradictions. You know, here he was, a, a gay man who, you know, was promo helping promote fascist politics when, when he really, you know, would have been sent off to a concentration camp with the rest. You know, I mean, it's, it's very, it was sort of befuddling to his friends who were quite bitter about it. Um, but he... Within a few years, he knew what a huge mistake. By the time the war really got going and the U.S. was involved, he knew. He knew the depths of his mistake. And, you know, he often said, uh, you know, how do you expiate guilt? Uh, you know, he was he knew he was guilty of this. And he said, I, I can it's the stupidest thing I've ever done. I, I can never atone for it. Um, he did try later in life to do many things for the Jewish community, um, including designing pro bono a synagogue, beautiful synagogue in Port Chester, New York. Um, the Kinesis Tifereth Israel Congregation has a gorgeous Johnson building that they take good care of and other projects. But anyway, so early days, you know, back there was a point there once he came out of that where he realized he had to start his life over again. He he looked at his great love for architecture and he decided to step away from the curation part and go back to school and learn architecture. So he went back to Harvard as a graduate student, now under the new modernist Walter Gropius directed graduate school of design. 
Um, and he was in his 30s, which was unusual in those days. Um, you know, now you go back to school anytime <laughs> until you're 90. But in those days, to have a 30-something-year-old go back to school, he was the age of many of his teachers, um, like Marcel Breuer, who had been a teacher at the Bauhaus and came with Gropius. And, and so Breuer was his contemporary, but was his teacher at, at Harvard. And one story that I love about this, which I think I read in the Franz Schultz biography of Johnson um, published in the 90s, was that while he was at the Harvard Graduate School, um, they allowed him to skip the History of Modern Architecture course because he had written one of the texts, um, which was go. the catalog for that 1932 show. That's a way to be a not, as I say, a non-traditional student, meaning an yeah. older student. <laughs> That's right. So we've got him in uh, 1940, he's at Harvard and he's studying architecture and studying with European masters who really had had to flee Europe and mm -hmm. escape Nazism. Uh, the United States benefited in all aspects of art and architecture, as well as engineering and science with these really people that were just fleeing. Absolutely. Nazis. Gropius and Breuer came to Harvard. Um, and then later we were lucky enough to get Breuer in New Canaan. He lived here. And then of course, Mies was, went to Illinois to IIT. So yeah, our, our educational system for architecture was utterly transformed by this huge windfall. So then he serves, he serves in the, in the military, American military for a couple of years and yes. gets out like a lot of other GIs. All of a sudden, war is over in 45. But do you know, he actually had, he wanted so much to be an officer, like all of his friends who had good ROTC training or whatever it was called at that time. And he could, they, the US government knew his background. And because of the fascist writings during that few years, he was, they would not allow him to be an officer. So when he finished, architecture school and schools were all on odd schedules during World War II because everybody was off to, you know, the, the armed forces and then back to school. He he finished his degree basically by March, although they awarded it to him in May, but he went off into the army as a buck private, cleaning latrines wow. and kitchens and, um, you know, his, his um, fellow soldiers who were much younger than he would sometimes call him pop, you know. <laughs> wow. Well, that's a big, that's a big change for being basically a trust. No, he went, you know, like all of the rest, they, they, all these architects were coming out of World War II and, and starting their households and, and modern architecture got its boost. We, we couldn't use glass and steel before the, during the war, everything had to be, had to be preserved for the war effort. I think everybody now would say, oh, New Canaan, that's such a Tony expensive place to live. But why did Johnson and his compatriots, the Harvard Five, actually moved to New Canaan? So we weren't so Tony and we certainly weren't expensive in those days. What, what makes people laugh when they come to the glass house and hear about this is that all of these architects, and Johnson wasn't the first, uh, Elliot Noyes was the first to come here, but they were all uh, either graduates or, as in Breuer's case, faculty on, at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard. They, um, five of them, which we call the Harvard Five in New Canaan, they all moved here um, because land was cheap and there was a lot of it available. New Canaan was not built up at the time. In the 40s, these guys were buying these an acre for an acre or two or three for a thousand to two thousand dollars an acre. 
um, which just is mind boggling. And of course, those values, even in those years, by, by 1949, they would cost more. And through the 50s and 60s, the you know the values went through the roof and, and continue to do so. And now you can't build in New Canaan without taking something down or finding a lot that gets subdivided. Everything is built up. But in those days, there was a lot of rural property. Elliot Noyes had small children and wanted to find a place with good schools and accessible to New York. Noyes was the um, industrial design curator at MoMA. And while Johnson still kind of had ties to MoMA as a as an architecture curator. Um, so they all were, and Breuer was wanting to set up his practice in New York. So they were all back and forth on the train and, or, or driving either way. But we just, it, it was, it was not expensive to come here. And the, also they loved the topography. New Canaan is one of those places where you get the high areas of rock and ledge in the same property with the wetlands. So there's a lot of slopes and it's, it's very dramatic. It's very difficult to build on, but these guys loved that. They loved the challenge of that, and they loved the landscape. So MoMA is the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and we've talked about Johnson's connection to that. And then the group that's the Harvard Five is Marcel Boyer, who he had as a professor mm-hmm. uh, at Harvard, mm-hmm. Elliot Noyes, who became one of the world's most famous industrial designers, too, mm-hmm. with the IBM Selectric typewriter ball, John Johansson and Landis Scores plus Johnson make up the Harvard Five. Mm-hmm. And I know, I take for granted people know what that is, but I've, I've had people be confused because Harvard is it, of course, is in Massachusetts, not New Canaan. Right. They'd all, they'd all studied together, but they all needed to be within commuting distance, basically, of New York. Of New York. So the Harvard New York. Five is in New Canaan, Connecticut. Yeah. So, he buys property. He buys maybe four or five acres, right? He bought five acres to start. Um, he he saw this property for the first time almost into the winter, Thanksgiving time. There was snow on the ground. It was totally wooded. I mean, what you see now when you see photos of the glass house are these beautiful open pastures, but he created those over 50 years by removing second growth and third growth trees. But um, he climbed down onto this shelf of land where there was an enormous drop off just so you're you come down the hill and there's a ledge and then you look even further down and he knew that that little shelf was going to be an ideal place for his house he didn't know what the house would look like yet um, they were all just buying land uh, after Elliot Noyes encouraged them to come um, and Johnson and Breuer and Gores was was there with Johnson and uh, John Johansson came a couple of years later, but um, he found that shelf of land. And, you know, if you look at the photos of the glass house now, um, even our, our shortest tour, which just goes to the glass house, gives you this spectacular view of that valley and also of the other buildings. So he had enough property that, as you said, there's sort of a roll downhill and then a ledge so he could build a house that wouldn't be visible from the street. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could describe the glass house, which, of course, if you were going to build a glass house, you don't want it to be visible from the street. Yeah. But if you could describe the glass house for our listeners, built in 1949. Yeah. Yeah. And and actually, before I launch into the description of that, I'll just say that 
to make it invisible from the street, what he actually had to do, there are stone walls. Everybody in Connecticut knows these stone walls um, all through the property. Um, he loved them. He never took one out. He he restored them all. But the ones at the street, he built up to over five feet tall. And that is what gave him his privacy. And there's maybe one place in the wall where if you're in a truck or a school bus, I know some like there's one member of the staff at the glass house who used to go by in a school bus as a kid and knew that exact place where you could kind of look over and see it. But anyway, in general, he raised that stone wall so that he has complete privacy. The glass house itself is, it's all steel and glass. There's no, there's no solid wall. It's a rectangle, it's a rectangle of approximately 55 by 33 feet, something like that. And the there's a brick floor. And it's he always thought of it as a pavilion for viewing nature. There, the one room, the bathroom, where you really have to have some kind of a solid wall. He solved that problem by creating a cylinder of brick that on one side has the fireplace and the other side has a little door and you go into the cylinder. So there's a round bathroom inside the rectangular glass house. Um, there's a bank of cabinets that separate the bedroom area on the north side from the living, dining, and kitchen kitchen area. But it's, it's all open. Um, so you have a 360-degree view, really, even over the cabinets that, that separate. One thing Johnson used to say about, well, I think he never anticipated that he knew he knew it would be beautiful to see the seasons change and the clouds and the sky. One thing he didn't anticipate it, that he was so delighted by after he built the house is that when it's snowing and the snow is coming down slowly around all four sides and you're standing in the glass house, he said, you feel like you're going up because you're just your your brain kind of sees all this downward movement. And he called it um, his celestial elevator. So oh, totally that's great. Well, the glass house itself has a, sort of a kitchen, what we would think of as a small kitchen now, but this was really a house where he they always maintained a New York apartment as well, right? So this is almost like a weekend house, but yeah. it's got a kitchen, it's got a dining area, it's got this beautiful little seating area where you, as you said, you can look out the window in every direction. It's got a bedroom, but he had to build the brick house which is a little distant, a separate building mm -hmm. from the glass house at the same time to really meet some of those important needs like the heating and guest rooms. Tell us a little bit about That's the right. brick house. Yeah, in fact, I should, I you know, I always struggled it. I, I should mention it with every breath of the glass house. They were designed and built at the same time. So the, the brick house has or was meant to have the the guest bedrooms for the glass house and in some of his early ideas early sketches when he was first designing the house he had those guest bedrooms at an angle a sort of an l shape coming off of the house uh, the main house and then he saw Mies van der Rohe's sketches for the Farnsworth house, which were complete about designing a glass house as early as 1945. And, and Mies was in was about to design the Farnsworth house for Edith Farnsworth, um, which is also now a National Trust property. So you can visit both of them. We're both under the same wing of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And once he saw Mies's sketches 
um, for this beautiful glass pavilion, beautiful object in the landscape, he decided to take his guest bedrooms and and push them away as a separate building that would be across a sort of a courtyard from the glass house. And, and originally there were two guest bedrooms. And then just a few years later, just I think 1953 or four, he had changed it to one big, beautiful bedroom, a bathroom and a study in the brick house. So when you come to visit the glass house, you there's you you're you're walking right between the the glass house and the brick house and your eye goes to the brick house first and bounces off it and many people think it's just a utility building there's a solid wall of brick it's the solid and the void this you know sort of solid wall and then the the uh, translucence and and um, transparency of the glass house across the way so in addition to having the guest bedrooms. Um, the the brick house also has underneath it, partly under the lawn, but tucked under it, one basement room about twelve by twelve. I'm guessing that is accessed through a basement ladder from the brick house down into this underground room, and this is where you have all the typical stuff that we all have in our houses, the oil tank, the furnace, the hot water heater, the electric panel, and the pipes and wires go underground, roughly under the pathway between the brick house and the glass house over to the glass house, which is on a slab. There's no basement. And the uh, the heating in the glass house is under the brick floor. It's radiant heat. 1949 was very early for doing radiant heat. Most of us are still just discovering that now, but um, it was not the first use of it, but certainly very early. Um, so, you know, you have to figure out a way to have no radiators and, and not a lot of mechanical equipment. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibit to come to a land of milk and honey, Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve opens April 21st, 2023. Learn about this land in present-day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. Exhibit supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit at litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. Now, Johnson would use this property as a weekend type of house, and he would invite prominent people up. Uh, he invited artists and thinkers and designers of all kinds. And those really are notable now as almost like a salon, a formal mm -hmm. uh, conversational salon. But it's also one of the reasons that the Glass House is important as an LBTQ landmark. Mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. The um, the Vincent Scully at Yale called the Glass House the longest running salon in the history of the United States because the usual way you came was you came with a group of artists or architects who were talking about their work. So it wasn't just a cocktail party. I mean, it might have been that, but it was also a more serious um, endeavor. 
and you know Johnson was a gay man and his his um partner David Whitney who was educated at RISD and then went right into the art world afterwards um and had his own gallery was a really astute collector of modern art and you see some of that when you visit the painting gallery. Their circle of friends included many influential artists who were gay. Um, and Andy Warhol spent quite a lot of time at the Glass House. He was a very close friend of David Whitney's first and then became a close friend of Johnson's. Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg visited often. Um, Merce Cunningham and John Cage also visited the Glass House often. And Johnson was just interested in their work and, and um, you know, wanted to always put artists in touch with each other. And uh, he did a he did a big fundraiser um, for Merce Cunningham's dance troupe. And that was in 1967. There was a you could it was like a ticketed event where you could watch the dancers perform on the meadow. And then there was a cocktail party after that. And then into the wee hours, everybody danced to the Velvet Underground. So we have some archival film of that in the visitor center that you can watch while you're waiting for your tour. And you get little glimpses of Andy Warhol in the in the audience. And um, it's really fun. So that's, you know, that was an important thing. And, and actually, if I can say even more about Johnson as a gay man, you know, think about the 20th century, his early part of his life, he kind of kept that part of his life, his personal life separate, didn't talk about it a lot. And, you know, by the time he was in his 60s and 70s, um, this had completely changed. And he and David were a couple and they went to social gatherings together. So, uh, you know, really, he he saw he saw so many changes in this area. And but also this is just a place where um, a lot of great artists who were gay gathered and um, were inspired and um, just have a, they're, they're a piece of our history. So Johnson and Whitney were partners for 30 years. And as you said, they're both interested in art. Whitney does that as a profession, really. Mm -hmm. So they, the site as a whole has 13 or 14 structures on it. Mm -hmm. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about the two that were really designed to showcase their art, the berm building and then the, the yeah. painting building. So when you come on on a general glass house tour, you're you're going into four different buildings. Um, the glass house. Then there's a there's a deconstructivist building that we end the tour in. That was his last building on the site, the monster, he called it. Um, and but the two buildings you're referring to um, were built in 1965 and 1970. So just after David was on the scene, um, and the painting gallery was done first, and it's really um, one of the biggest surprises on on the the whole site you it's it's um it's a berm it's built it was not built underground it was built on grade and then they pushed the earth up against it berms were very popular in the in the 60s and the environmentalist movement has have brought them back to some degree but it's the entrance to it is based on the treasury of atreus an ancient greek tomb so it is the it is the tomb, the mound, and the burial site. This tomb entrance, you go through the doors, which I think Hillary Lewis, our chief curator, always describes Philip Johnson doors as being way too tall and so elegant because of that. So you go through these tall doors, and there's a little vestibule with some Lynn Davis photographs and some other work that we change occasionally. And then you walk into this enormous space that you 
can't believe is is underground. Um, high ceilings. Um, it's the building. The floor plan of the building is a clover shape, and there are three enormous carousels that work like a Rolodex or a rug sample display. And these oversized modern paintings that Johnson and Whitney bought together, starting in 1960, are there. And so it's a it's a system where you can keep a lot of paintings in storage, but just look at two at a time on each wall. So the carousels, he would usually have them open like a book at 180 degrees on each each wall. So you see six large paintings. So we still have the permanent collection of paintings there. And when you when you walk in, you every year we we change it up. So you're seeing a different part of the collection each year. This year, you will see um, some Frank Stella paintings, um, Robert Rauschenberg, and then this stunning, um, it's our one Andy Warhol piece. It's Portrait of Philip Johnson from 19, I think, 70 or 71. And it's very unusual color palette for, for Warhol, sort of blues and sepia browns. And it's it's really a, a knockout. And I, that was obviously that was one that Johnson wanted to keep. They um, Johnson and Whitney had a long time to think about what what would be kept there. They, it was always their plan to make the glass house a public place. So that painting was certainly, I'm sure that was a near the top of the list. And then there's not because of these panels that's that circulate, there's not a lot of space in the painting gallery for sculpture, even though it's a large building. So five years later, uh, 1970, he built the the sculpture gallery which a lot of people, a lot of architects and architectural critics think is one of his best buildings, period. Um, it's a based on a Mediterranean village or Greek village where you have white, whitewashed walls. It's He also described it as an interior building. So I haven't really described the exterior. It's just a big whitewashed angled roof, glass roof, but solid walls. Um, you walk inside and there's there's a brick floor, um, staircases that go around in a pattern that's basically sort of a square angled into another square. So inside the buildings, the the sculptures have their own little bays as you walk down the stairs. There are little doorways, um, again, like a Greek village where each stairway leads to somebody's door on the hillside. And so these the sculptures, the smaller ones are grouped together. The larger ones have their own place. Johnson felt there was something called that he felt that was called museum fatigue. When you walk in and you are looking at 50 things at once, and he wanted to avoid that in his sculpture gallery and in the painting gallery. And so everything has its own, own space. The other interesting thing about the sculpture gallery is that it, it has a greenhouse roof with these steel tubular beams and lights on the beams. So there's neon lights on the beams, but the alternation of the sort of glass greenhouse ceiling or roof and the and the steel beams causes these bold shadows. On a sunny day, you have these bold stripes from that are absolutely vertical at noon in the summer. And then as you go through the afternoon, they become these bold diagonals. So they are almost their the shadows are are their own kind of sculpture. And they tend to sort of almost obfuscate the way that you see the sculpture. I know the first time I went to the and saw the painting gallery, you you walk kind of walk in this 
tall but not that big door to get into this. As you said, you have this underground feel to it, burned feel to it. You walk in and there's a hallway, as you said, with photographs. But then when you get into the space where these paintings are, large is not even close. These things are mammoth. These things are like, some of these paintings are the size of my living room walls. They're <laughs> really big. And so, as you said, you're trying to, you, the curator showed us how you, they flip through like I'm looking at rugs at, you know, mm-hmm. Marshalls or somewhere and you're flipping through the rugs. Trying and it's to get not electric. Hand. It's all mechanical. So Johnson had to get behind these things and push them around. They're, they're quite heavy. They're attached yeah. by a mechanical system on top that has a wheel and then not attached at all at the bottom. Switching gears to the sculpture building pavilion, that one, you almost, it has this funny feeling, you almost feel like you're at an archaeological site mm-hmm. because there's no handrails on the stairs, for example, and everything is kind of stucco and you feel like you could be at some Italian archaeological site uh, just about, there's one room that has kind of a pottery installation in it. And it, it yes, that really one, I, that's such a beautiful, Andrew Lord is the the artist, British artist, and his idea was and he he made these ancient pot types. He did them himself. He's not just a ceramicist. He does many things, but he he did these ancient pot types. And these things might be two and a half feet tall or something. And they're they're arranged in rows to look like you're at an archaeological dig and they're finding things and lining them up. So it's very beautiful little sculpture exhibition that has its own little space in one lower alcove in the sculpture gallery. Something I recommend and I want that you should definitely do before you go to the house and maybe do it again when you get back is if you go to the Glasshouse website, which we'll give you at the end of the episode and on our show notes, they talk about each one of these 13 or 14 objects or buildings that are on this now 49 acre site because they kept buying property, as well as the three older buildings that were already on the property that they kept. And you can see each one of these, and you can also read what Johnson said about them. So he designs these uh, little buildings throughout his entire career. He uses the grounds as a way to experiment with building materials and looks and styles. So it's just really fascinating. So I think if you go to the website before you go and after you go and you read Johnson's own words about them, they're pretty amazing. His I still career- look back at that myself. There's things that you rediscover just the and and he was such a he was very witty and funny. So the quotes are wonderful that they, they will they will stay with you. What and those you buildings think? also were um sorry, I don't need to interrupt but the, I I should mention that he as he was building each of these structures. Um, he always was interested in landscape architecture. He loved landscape architecture. He loved English country house landscaping. He loved French landscape painting. But as he continued to build buildings, he was not just doing individual buildings. He was thinking of the entire site, which, as you said, grew from the five acres. Oh, he quickly had, you know, closer to 30 something. And then we're now at 49. Um, and he was thinking about the whole landscape as a composition. So he very carefully thought about these buildings um, and placed them in the landscape, almost the way that painters of landscape in the 1800s would would place objects or pavilions or little structures 
in the landscape as as sort of foreground, middle ground uh, markers. What do you think is the number one misconception about the glass house? Um, we still, you know, we still have lots of people come. And I, I think it's the problem is that we call it the glass house. And for us, that means seven buildings and seven structures and 49 acres. But I think sometimes people come and they think they're just going to see this little glass pavilion on its landscape. And they're they're perfectly happy just to see that. And then they're so excited to find out there's this underground painting gallery and an enormous sculpture gallery, the Monsta, which is a what Johnson called his structured warp sort of um and then the library and studio. So I think they're just, you know, it doesn't work against us at all. People are really excited to find out that they're really going into a whole bunch of buildings and and seeing art collections um that you just won't won't see anywhere else. I know one of the challenges has been to be able to I think there's been a couple panels of the glass that have been replaced and that that's that was a challenge. It that is easy, so interesting. But... The, the history of the glass. Um, and and oh, I should also say, you know, every year, besides showing something different in the painting gallery, we also occasionally bring in an artist to install work on the landscape or in the galleries. And, and this year, we'll have a Connecticut-based sculptor, uh, Mark Menon, who does these beautiful large-scale stone sculptures. Um, and he will have pieces installed throughout the landscape. I think some there will be works in granite, onyx, and marble too. So the maintenance of the, the property is challenging and using these materials that he used, like the glass, mm-hmm. even that is challenging in and of itself. Now his career, which is really deserves its own episode of the podcast, just went great guns, had offices in New York, did work mm-hmm. all over the United States, uh, had a partner. That was uh, a huge endeavor, and he, that was wildly successful. He won the American Institute of Architects Gold Medal in 1978 and the first Pritzker Architecture Prize in 1979. Mm-hmm. But as you said, he was always interested in having the Glasshouse property be open to the public. How mm-hmm. did the National Trust for Historic Preservation open the house as a house museum? Well, he started thinking about this in the late 70s. He wanted to find a way because the whole landscape as a composition um, was important to him. He said, he actually said a few times, I don't see a line drawn between landscape and architecture. So that's how he's, and he said, I'm a better landscape architect than I am an architect. But um, he started thinking about this in the seventies. He spoke with the National Trust and, and what the National Trust did at the time, generally across the board, if you wanted to donate a property, they would have you go through the local organization. And in New Canaan, that would be the historical society um, which had always championed him in spite of all the controversy of the traditionalists who just couldn't understand the little Bauhaus boxes. So he went to the Historical Society to start to to figure out, um, you know, how things might work or just to make create an awareness that he would like this to be a public place. And so what he eventually had a legal agreement with the National Trust that he, I mean, by, I think it was 86, during 86 or 87, he technically donated the place to the trust. So the trust owned it starting in the late 80s, but he had an agreement that 
it was his home until his death. So what, so late eighties, he still had mostly almost 20 years to, to really talk with the trust. And so that what they, what he did is he would have conversations with them about the property, about how he might like things to work or how, you know, what work might need to be done and just how he liked to do things so that they could continue later on. But they actually didn't come in to begin preparing the site until after his death. So um, it was his home until 2005, but but the plans were in place. And, you know, he, he and David thought about which paintings to keep, which ones to donate. You know, he, throughout his life, he donated paintings to MoMA. And, um, you know, after his death, it took about two years to just deal with the usual, the state things. And, um, you know, we had to, there's very little physically on site that we had to do. We had to put in a pathway just to create accessibility through one of the meadows. Um, but he already had a pathway up, a paved pathway up at the gallery. So we just had to connect that down to the glass house area. So, you know, it, it took a couple of years to figure out how it would work because the glass house is in a residential area of New Canaan. And so we had to have another spot where, where visitors could come and then be taken by minibus over to the site. That was sort of how the agreement was worked out. And, and so all of those uh, administrative things and logistical things um, took some time, but we opened in, in 2007. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to book a tour, Listeners, you can go to the theglasshouse.org and find out more. If the season runs, it's open now from April 17th, 2023 until December 15th, but you definitely want to go when it's lovely and warm. Gwen, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today and sure. telling us about the glass house. Thank you. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. 